in Romans chapter um, 1 through chapter 8, we have been going through a number of different truths. And when you read the epistle of Romans, it seems very much like Romans chapter 12, verse 1, picks up right where Romans chapter 8, verse 39 ends. So where Romans chapter 8 ends, where we ended last week, Romans chapter 12 seems to pick up right from there. And chapters 9 through 11, what we're looking at now, seem like a very different set of topics from Paul's explanation of righteousness, justification by faith, and the love of God. So what we saw in chapters 1 through 8, and then the practical means by which we should live in righteousness that's covered in chapters 12 through 16. So chapters 9 through 11 seem a little different, but the focus of chapters 9 through 11 is on the Jewish people and the righteousness of the God of Israel. And these chapters are not accidental. It's not that Paul just had a parenthetical thought and he said, oh, let me just tell you about God the God of Israel and the people, the children of Israel. And let me just go into that topic for a little bit. No, he's saying these things for a very specific reasons, and they have a very important set of truths for us to learn. But quite importantly, in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, Paul is addressing the question that would have come up in the first century and continues to come up today, which is this. Why don't the Jewish people believe in Jesus, Yeshua? the Jewish Messiah. Why is it that they who had been promised the Messiah and who then they had been waiting for the Messiah for so long, why did they miss Jesus? Why did they not receive Jesus? And this morning, in the first five verses of chapter nine, we're just setting up the context for chapters nine through 11. So this is a very brief and very introductory message today, right? And I encourage you to be reading through chapters 9 through 11, look at other notes and things, and be prepared as we go into that. But this this morning, we're just looking at the first five verses of chapter 9. And Romans chapter 9 opens with a very personal sentiment, Paul's unceasing anguish for his people. Romans 7, 9, verses 1 through 5. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul is distressed. He is in unceasing anguish of heart when he considers that his own people have largely rejected the Messiah, even though they had received everything from God to bring them to himself. So what is it that they received? 
First, it says that they received the adoption to sonship. Now, that phrase should be familiar because we just read about that in these preceding chapters about the fact that we have been adopted as children of God, that God has brought us into the family of God, that God has called us his own. And we said, what a wonderful privilege we have. But way before the rest of the world was hearing that as such, way before that we were exposed to that truth, the children of Israel all those years ago were referred to as the sons of God, as the children of God. And he says in Exodus 4.22 and in other scriptures that Israel is my son. And he calls them his own. He calls them his, his offspring as such. Right? The second thing, he says the children of Israel received divine glory. And this is referring to God's visible glory that was in the presence of the children of Israel, both in the tabernacle and in the temple. And when they were in the wilderness, moving in the wilderness for 40 years, the Bible says that the glory of God would come down or would be visible to them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it would be over the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the most holy place of the tabernacle, but it would be visible. And the glory of God was given to the people. So you just had to wake up in the morning, come out of your tent, and you would see the glory of God. It was that real. So that was given to the people in a very tangible way, in a very direct way. The glory of God, which is called a Shekinah, the manifestation of God's presence, was dwelling right in their midst. And you can see all of these references in Exodus and Kings and so on. The next thing, God gives the children of Israel... The covenants, and this refers to God establishing his relationship, his covenant relationship with the people and the covenant obligations or the covenant commands and the ways in which he said, you are my chosen people, you belong to me, this is the covenant I'm establishing with you, and I want you to walk in these ways. I want you to do this in terms of how you would be united with me. And so there's the covenant through Noah in Genesis 9, through Abraham in Genesis 15, through Moses in Exodus 24, and David in 2 Samuel. And in all these cases, God is establishing that relationship with the children of Israel. Next, we see the receiving of the law. Right? Paul says that they received the law, and this is referring to God giving the Ten Commandments and all of the law by revelation. By divine revelation, they didn't just, you know, come up with something. They didn't think of something and say, this may be a good thing to do. They received these revelations from God that allowed them to understand the very commands, decrees, the law of God. So that was given, and particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, you see all of those references. The next thing that Paul refers to is that they had temple worship. And this was a very visible order of service or a way in which the people would come to the Lord. Hebrews chapter 9 actually outlines that how the people would approach God. There needed to be a blood sacrifice. There needed to be washing and purification. They would, they would wash themselves and then that would be a preparation for coming into the holy place or coming into the, into the temple grounds even. And then a priest would have to go into the holy place and into the most holy place once a year on behalf of the people. So this was a very specific ordinances, set of ordinances that the Lord had given them with regard to temple worship. And all of these were given, these rituals were given to show that you couldn't just approach God in sin 
without some atonement. There had to be a price that was paid. There was an atonement that was given, which was the sacrifice, the shedding of blood for the atonement of sins. So this was all given to the children of Israel. And then the children of Israel were given promises. And you throughout the Old Testament, you see these prophecies and promises about so much about their lives, of their lives, but very specifically about the Messiah. The promises of God were given to the children of Israel, saying, this is going to happen. You know, and a virgin will conceive and, you know, the light will shine in the darkness. We were talking about this just in the fasting and prayer meeting yesterday, you know, that when the light is given and there's a way in which we are able to receive these promises of God into the darkness, you know, in youth meeting, we were talking about this on, on Friday, you know, into the darkness comes a great light. These were all promises that were given to the children of Israel. And then finally, the patriarchs, Paul says that we have been, the children of Israel have received the patriarchs, or these are the, and, and through those patriarchs, the human ancestry of the Messiah. So this is Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but also people like Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David. And Paul is pointing out that God spoke to Israel through these men, through these generations. And all of them were to foreshadow, where to predict, where to prophesy, where to point to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, who was Jewish. And so God had purposed for the Son of God, for Jesus to come as a human being. He came as part of a culture, a group of people, a race, right? And he came as a Jewish person. He came to the children of Israel. By becoming a Jew, God was giving the Jews, the Jewish people, a great honor and making it easier for them to relate to the Son of God than anyone else. But in, and in every one of these provisions, you can see how Jesus fulfills this. All of these things that were given, that were pointing to Jesus, they were fulfilled in Jesus. They were shown in part but then in Jesus, they were all fulfilled. So you can go through that. I'm not going through the details. But the question remains, why didn't the Jewish people receive Jesus? Paul states in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, we'll pick that up next week. But he says in there that it wasn't because the promises of God had failed. It's not that God made these promises about the Messiah and then the promises failed. It was the fact, and it wasn't because the, the, the signs of the fulfillment weren't clear. God gave very clear signs, and they were very straightforward, right? This will happen, this will happen, this will happen. In Bethlehem, you know, the, the baby will be born. I mean, the, the signs were given. It was all very clear. It wasn't because Jesus failed to make it clear that he was the Messiah. In fact, he was crucified on a charge of blasphemy for claiming that he was God. It's not that, you know, some people will mistakenly say that Jesus didn't say that he was God. He absolutely did. And so all of that was very clear. So what happened? The Jewish people rejected their long-awaited Savior because over time they had redefined their salvation and their Savior from what God had said to what they wanted. They were no longer interpreting the scriptures to understand what it said. They were using the scriptures to justify what they said. And that changed the entire perspective. In May of this year, 
when we were studying Acts chapter 21, verse 17, through Acts chapter 22, verse 22, when we were in that particular message in May, we saw that Paul very clearly identified himself as Jewish and was eager for his Jewish brothers and sisters to know Jesus as Messiah. So this anguish of Paul is not new. We've seen this before. He's, he's, he, he hurts, the, you know, and he's longing for his brothers and his sisters to know the Messiah. But even in that chapter, in, in Acts chapter 21, when we were there, we saw that the people, the Jewish people, rejected him, attacked him physically, handed him over, and handed him over to the Romans to be killed. And I stated in that message that what must govern our behavior, including our acceptance of the Lord, is an understanding of and an adherence to a biblical culture rather than a human culture. The human culture of the people of Israel had become so important that they were rejecting the very Messiah that they were waiting for. And I was saying that we have to be a people who are not who are not driven by, who are not living according to a human culture, but are paying attention to a biblical culture. And I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that message from May 9th, uh, which was entitled, Which Culture? And it addresses a number of things about how we should understand culture and tradition, and how do we handle rejection? How did Paul handle rejection by the Jewish people? Right. So I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that message. God's intent was not that separate and distinct human cultures should give rise to distinct religious beliefs about God. So you have one culture here in India and another culture in China and another culture in, in Europe and another culture in Africa. And each one of them distinct cultures will give rise to distinct religions. That was not the intent. The intent was, God's intent was that religion, or more accurately, relationship with God based on his word would give rise to a shared word-based biblical culture. That was the intent. You know, it was not that we would remain separated. It was that we would come together in Christ and in the word of God. And that would transform the way that we live. So the Jewish people rejected Jesus, the disciples, Paul, and the church primarily because they held to human culture, human tradition, human things. Jesus himself speaks of that. And so their adoption as sons, their divine glory that was given, the covenants that had, they had received, the law that they had received, the temple worship they were familiar with, the promises that they had, and the patriarchs all created a unique culture. Nobody else around them had received these things. It created a unique culture and a differentiation from everyone else. But what God had instituted for the people to point them to himself became more important to the people than God himself. So God had said, here's all these things that I'm giving you to point you to the Messiah. They took those things that God had given and made them so important that they became more important than God himself. And they, Jesus said, you have nullified the word of God by your traditions. Right? Which brings us back to Paul's anguish. Paul's anguish was for his own people. It should be obvious from our study on the book of Acts, Paul's impassioned epistles to the Gentile churches and everything we're studying in Romans, that Paul deeply loved and cared for non-Jewish believers of the non-Jewish people in general. It wasn't even just the believers. He, he was willing to suffer any hardship for their sake. 
you know, but by the virtue of his birth and upbringing, he states a responsibility and heartfelt desire to reach out to his own people, the children of Israel. He's not trying to reach out to them exclusively, but he repeatedly makes sincere efforts to present Jesus to them. Now, here's an important thing I want you to understand. Paul's goal here is not to place the Jewish people as superior over everyone else. In fact, he's expressing his heart desire for their salvation so that, and we'll see this in Romans chapter 11, verse 8, so that non-Jewish believers will not place themselves as superior over the Jews. Because the tendency was that the non-Jewish believers would now say, well, you Jewish people have rejected the Messiah and we have received everything. We have now replaced you or taken your, you know, what, your blessing. We are superior to you. So Paul was actually, in many ways, speaking preemptively against anti-Semitism in the church. But sadly, we know this, that the church did not heed these charges and mercilessly persecuted Jewish people. Again, listen to the message in May from May, and I've gotten into a little bit more detail on that in that message. Paul is expressing his anguish and his heart desire for the Jewish people so that we would always pray for and desire the same. Let me say that again. Paul is expressing his heart desire for the Jewish people so that we today would also express the same desire to see the Jewish people coming to faith and knowing their Messiah. He who they rejected, that today they would receive. That's our prayer. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're not just praying for no conflict, no armed conflict. We're praying that in Jerusalem, the Messiah would be worshiped, would be known, right? So that is what we are desiring. And that's what Paul is saying. But, uh, and we'll get into a little bit more about this through chapters nine through 11. And, but Paul's desire for the Jewish people, he went further than just a sorrow. Paul was willing to forego his own salvation for the sake of the people. And that's an incredible statement. In verse 3, it says, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. It is clear that Paul sincerely cares and longs for the salvation of his people. He'd be willing to do anything for their sake. And his statement is like Moses pleading with God in Exodus chapter 32, verses 31 through 32, where, on, where Moses is speaking to God on behalf of the disobedient children of, God, of Israel. And he says, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now... Please forgive their sin. But if not, blot, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses is willing to say, forego. I, I will forego my, you know, my being with you in order that the children of Israel be saved. Paul is expressing a very similar sentiment. But based on how God responds to Moses in Exodus and what we learned last week in Romans 8, that nothing not even our sincere desire to account for someone else's sin. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So when Paul says, you know, let me be blotted out. When Moses says, let me be blotted out. So God says, no, that's not the point. 
because we have to remember that only Jesus, not us, can save the lost. Paul's sincere statement, though, his anguish, his heart has to challenge us to consider how intensely do we desire the salvation of the people the Lord has brought into our lives. We were born not by accident, but by God's plan. We're connected with a number of people now and from our past, and we will be in the future. How intensely, how, ang how much anguish do we have for their salvation? And we would say, oh, Lord God, if it were that I would be blotted out, that I would not be joined with you, but they could be saved, oh, let that happen. That's the anguish of Paul that we need to pay attention to. The intense desire that he would say, Lord God, I'm calling out for these countrymen of mine, these people that you've brought into my life. And are we interceding with that kind of unceasing anguish for the salvation of the lost? Would there be any change if we did? We have to see, we have to do that, we have to find out. Maybe several people will never respond to the Lord. It's not that, you know, even as Paul is crying out in anguish like this, the majority of the Jewish people just accepted the Lord. They didn't. But we do have that responsibility, not to focus on the outcome. Oh, I prayed and all these people got saved. You know, it's not that. It's not the outcome. It's not the numbers. Our responsibility is to pray for and to minister to the people with a heart for the lost, which means that we respond and we apply by having a heart for the lost. The reason we support missionaries all over the world, the reason we're having a Christmas nativity festival, the reason we seek to be obedient to the Lord, to go into all the world and make disciples, is because we want to take the heart of the Lord to be our heart. And the heart of the Lord, as 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us, is that he does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the call that we have. That's the challenge that we have. That's the context. That's the overwhelming theme that underlies Romans 9 through 11. So even as we read, of the, you know, read the next few things, keep in mind that Paul is saying, oh, I am in deep anguish. My heart is breaking for the sake of my people. That we would pray. Maybe it's for family members. Maybe it's for neighbors. Maybe it's for someone, classmates and others that we have known. But, and, and I'm not at all saying that you must just go and say something to that person. I'm saying start to pray. Call out with anguish. Call out to the Lord and say, Lord God, I want to see these folks saved. I know that many of you are doing that. I know that many of you are praying for folks like that. And I want to encourage you. Don't worry about whether it happens or it doesn't happen or what they say or don't say. Don't worry about that. You continue to pray. You just continue to just bring them before the Lord. And you say, Lord God, with all that is in me, I cry out to you. Father God, we thank you. That Lord, these, these few brief verses 
just introduce us, just remind us of the anguish that Paul had for his people, for those that were in his life, for the lost. And thank you, Lord, that he was willing to do anything for everyone. But he particularly cried out for those that were of his own race, of his own people, and said, oh, God, oh, Lord, they have been receiving so much. Save them. Bring them to you. Let them not miss you. And Father, for so many around us, so many who have heard at least some mention of Jesus, Lord, they have received much. We are now crying out to you that they would be brought to you, that they would be saved, that they would come to know who you are and what you have done, and that they would be delivered. Thank you, Jesus. Father, thank you that as a church, as we bring these needs before you, as we cry out to you, Lord, you are kind, you are good, you are great, gracious, and you will touch the lives of many. So, Lord, we entrust these folks to you, and we call out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.